Say hallelujah. hallelujah. <laughs> so if you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Oh, how could I forget the offering? <laughs> Lord, I'm sorry. I, I want to cheat your people. All right, let's, uh, let's do the offering, shall we? <laughs> Lord, we thank you. That's right, we don't need, we don't need music. We'll just, bring, we'll just bring the offering. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of bringing this offering. And thank you, Lord, for faithful people who are anxious to bring that offering, who remind this old pastor, forgetful <laughs> pastor. Lord, we love you today. And We love your church, and thank you for all you're doing in our midst. We do bring this offering to you as an expression of our love and our commitment. Lord, our obedience to you, our faith. Hallowed be your name, Father. I pray your blessing on all those, Lord, who give this morning by faith, according to your word, that they would see your hand meet every need in their life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, we just have time for the Tenth Commandment. (laughs) Thank you, Al. Thank you for all those who graciously reminded me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet. Not covet anything. Anything that belongs to your neighbor. Anything that belongs to anybody around us. We know the Tenth Commandment, but may I suggest, I, I think that the, the Tenth Commandment and, the, and just the very sin of covetousness is given really little attention. It's easy for us, and truly this was the case with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, and he, he uh, castigated them for this, and But it's so typical of us as humans uh, to just concentrate on that which is visible, the external, the things that we can see, clean up our act externally, look good, that very often it's easy for us not to pay attention to the internal, to the thing that really actually does cause the external sins. Few sermons are preached, few lessons are ever taught on covetousness. 
I don't know that I've ever read a book on the subject. Certainly there are books that contain uh, information and and, uh, teachings on these, but not a whole book. And when you think about it, uh, this should, I think, be very, very surprising to us because covetousness, when you think about it, is one of the most prevailing evils of man. Simply stated, covetousness is a predominant desire or thought that craves, that lusts, that yearns, more particularly for that which we have no right to. And it is something that will just eat away at the human heart if it takes root. It is covetousness, very simply, that craves the things of the world. It craves the things of the world. It it, it, it lusts for the things of the world. Uh, Things that a, a person does not have. It's covetousness that craves the things of others. Covetousness, again, if given the opportunity, will enslave the heart. It will enslave the human soul. It will destroy a person. It also has the capacity to destroy other people. Covetousness is what causes, it was, it's what leads to so many, in fact, all of the other sins. A person covets another man, another woman, and then the resultant is immorality or adultery, sexual sin of some manner. A person may covet money or property, and if that lust takes hold, then very possibly stealing and or Murder could result. We, we know that that happens. People kill over money. A person covets recognition or acceptance. Or they seek to escape suspicion. And because of that coveting, uh, that person then is forced to lie. A person may feel unattractive or unhealthy or inadequate or poor. And as a result, they may covet what someone else has to the point of wishing maybe that something bad would happen to that other person that they might not feel so bad about themselves. Covetousness, as you can see, is terribly, terribly destructive. It is a desire, it is a thought that given a place will gnaw away at the mind, gnaw away at the heart, gnaw away at the soul until it absolutely consumes a person. I don't know that there isn't a single person here that doesn't know what we're talking about that hasn't struggled with some element of covetousness and it hasn't at some point grabbed your heart, got a hold of you, and you can't think about anything else. You can't focus on anything else. It is just consuming to you. And indeed, you're tempted to act out that thought. And sometimes that temptation is absolutely overwhelming. Those thoughts, those desires left unchecked, that they will, if, if, if allowed, they will force you to act. Many people say, I'm just, I'm just powerless. I, I, I can't stop myself. I'm just consumed with this. In such moments, it's only the power of God that can enable us to withstand that temptation. Only God can keep us from reaching out and taking what is not ours only God. Hence, we understand the necessity to be ultimately absolutely committed to Him. Because we we see how vulnerable we are. We're so vulnerable. We we dare not deceive ourselves. We dare not fool ourselves and think, you know, I've got it all under control. I'm I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Well, let's, let's open up the heart. If we could, in some manner, in some fashion... Uh, with, with our modern technology, uh, flash everybody's thoughts and, and, and desires on this screen uh, just the past week. I certainly would not be the first volunteer. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We look good on the outside. We look great on the outside, but what's going on on the inside? This is what Jesus told the leaders, the Jewish leaders of his day. 
He said, on the outside, you're nice and clean. You're, you're like whitewashed tombs. You, you look really good, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Or, or you're like a cup that's been washed on the outside, but inside is old, moldy, crusty, uh, months-old oatmeal. The Tenth Commandment is, is important for a number of reasons. One, it, it, it concerns a person's security. More particularly in that culture, a man's security, all he owns. It forbade coveting anything that belonged to uh, your neighbor. His house, his wife, his servant, his workers, his animals, anything else. A man should be able to live in peace and, and feel secure. This commandment was meant to point to that. Person should not have to worry about someone coveting and stealing what he has. His wife, his family, his property, his possessions, his joy, or anything else he has should be secure and protected against the covetousness and threat of theft. Covetousness, again, is that inward sin. It's a sin of the heart and the mind, it's a desire of thought. The Tenth Commandment, if you hadn't noticed, differs from the first nine in this very fact that it is not an outward sin. The first nine are outward sins. The tenth is an inward desire that leads to the outward sin. Remember, the first nine commandments dealt with idolatry, using God's name in vain, violating the Sabbath, Dishonoring parents, murder, adultery, lying, stealing, and such. But the Tenth Commandment doesn't deal with the outward visible sins. The Tenth Commandment deals with the human heart, with the inward feelings, the inward thoughts, the inward attitudes, and the inward desires. The Tenth Commandment, instead of forbidding an action forbids a state of mind. It goes right to where no other human being can see. The only persons that can see are you and God, and God more clearly than you. Isn't that true? You see, you can be living an orgy of covetousness in your mind and in your heart, and no one would know it. We are masters at concealing things, aren't we? You may, you may just look like and, 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 and act like a, a typical, normal, everyday, average person, whatever that is. You may have a normal haircut, a congenial face, a conventional manner. You may not have a single telltale extravagance in your life. Nothing necessary to call attention to you, out of the ordinary. You may indeed even be a leader in the church and yet be seething with an angry covetousness just inside, just consuming you. No one would even come close to dreaming that you, you are covetous. You see, it is an easily camouflaged interior sin. And as I said a moment ago, covetousness precedes any other sin. We don't lie, we don't steal, we don't murder, we don't commit sexual sin until we've first done it where? In our heart. You see, we never break just one commandment. When you've broken one of the first nine, you've already broken the tenth one first. At, at the minimum, you always break two. God listed this commandment of coveting, the last, it's a, the tenth commandment. I thought, why would he list this as the tenth commandment? You'd think he'd list it as the first no, but it's the tenth. Because coveting is the first thing that happens before a person commits outward sin. And so it really does summarize all that he said in the law. 
It comes down ultimately not just to actions. It comes down to a person's heart. You go down through the first nine and you, and you tick those off. You say, I'm doing good there. I'm doing good there. I'm doing good there. I'm doing good there. And then, boom, you hit the tenth one, just like Paul in Romans chapter 7. Oh! And you see coveting of every kind. You see, before a person ever commits a sinful act, they think about it. They ponder it. They desire to do that. Covetousness is ultimately being so consumed with getting something that we become enslaved by it. Our hearts become focused upon a possession, upon a thing, upon a person, something other than God. That's the reason Scripture declares covetousness the same as idolatry. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. See, you can't get away from it. This is, it, it confronts us continually. This was a problem in the early church. It's a problem for us today. And most of us, most of us, quite frankly, are guilty of looking at others and comparing ourselves to them. And when you do that, you covet not only against that person, you actually covet against God if you experience a measure of uh, sinful attitude, dissatisfaction uh, in an unholy manner. You actually covet against God. Because God has made you what he has made you. He's put you in this place. He has provided for you. Uh, He has gifted you in a certain way. And when you look out at others and you start comparing yourself with others and uh, you find yourself thinking, well, I've come out on the short end, you've coveted against God, not just against your neighbor. And then we end up torturing ourselves. We think, oh, I'm not as good as that person. I'm not as, I don't have the, 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 the blessings that that person has. I came out on the short end, and we torture ourselves and drive ourselves to depression by self-pity. And we think we deserve more. When we find ourselves jealous of what life is for someone else, when we find ourselves dreaming of how happy we would be if we were in that other person's situation, may I suggest to you that's a dead giveaway that we are falling into the subtle, seductive hands of covetousness. Was well, it a sin to, 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 to admire? Well, you're not admiring. <laughs> you're wanting what they have. You're wanting their position. You're jealous of them. You're coveting that. That is sin. And that's going to consume you, and it's going to consume that relationship with that person. Just think of this. How often do we convince ourselves that other people always get the breaks and not us? Well, they get, yeah, well, yeah, they get, yeah, they're blessed, yeah, not me. How recently have we thought that we were deprived of some opportunity? Some blessing. We look at somebody else's life and and we compare. We look to our peers, friends of our own age, and see where they are in life. And, And we find ourselves plagued with the notion that they had far more opportunity. They really, they just are so privileged and blessed and had the opportunities that I didn't have. Now, you may not associate that with coveting, But that's exactly what it is, and it is destructive. It will eat you up, I promise you. We convince ourselves that we have a sort of cosmic right to equal share of the good things of life, and and, and more particularly in our culture, because we, we have really developed and fostered an entitlement mentality. Everyone's entitled. We all have an equal right to all the good things and to share in all the good things. And if you believe that, that's a fallacious idea. That's just not life. That's not reality. That's not the way God made things. And it plays into folly in your life. You set yourself up for a huge fall if you think that way. There is no equality 
to being in the right place at the right time. We all know people who have been in the right place at the right time. Oh, did they get, wow, I was just, they just, I wish I could have been in the right place at the right time, like them. Am I making sense? Is this, is this, we tracking? I mean, you're looking at me like, You see, if you're leaning in that direction, if you think that, well, you know, I have an equal share in all the stuff, if you're leaning in that direction, consider how you would feel if you were averaged out with the world's two billion starving people. You've heard me say a number of times that I I think every every Christian ought to go at least once in their life on some cross-cultural mission experience. Just even a short term, even two weeks out of your life. Take a vacation, go to the mission field, two weeks. You come back, go spend some time with John in South Africa. Go feed those poor kids. Go minister in those AIDS hospitals. You come back a marked person, much different than you went. Much more appreciative for what God has given you. Much less prone to necessarily envy or jealous and covet that which other people have. You see, we, we always tend to want to be averaged up, not averaged down. You ever notice that? Oh, I really envy those poor people. I want to be like them. No, we never say that. I envy the rich people. I want to be like them. I want what they have. Covetousness is an insidious sin. And it is powerfully condemned by the Scriptures. The prophet Micah saw it as the source of iniquity and oppression. Micah chapter 2, he says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do so. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. We all know of those stories. We've heard of those stories even in present life. You don't have to go back to ancient Israel. But this is a dilemma throughout the history of man. Coveting. Proverbs 21-26 views covetousness as the dividing line between righteous and evil people. This is what sets them apart. What's in their heart. This is why we need a new heart. All day long, he craves for more. The evil man, all day long, he craves for more. But the righteous give without sparing. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus warned a covetous young man who requested him to make his brother divide the family inheritance. You recall this. And he said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he goes on in that same chapter in Luke's Gospel, and Jesus went on to teach the people the parable of the rich fool who planned out his full-barned early retirement. He retired early, didn't he? The very night that he planned his retirement. Early retirement indeed. The Apostle Paul repeatedly addressed covetousness. He told the Ephesians... But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. He's saying, in effect, you're better than this. Don't sink down to that level. You're better than this. He's holding the bar up high. He says, rise to the occasion. Be better than the common, lowest common denominator. He told the Ephesian elders before he left them, it's recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 20, he says, I have not coveted anyone's silver, gold, clothing. He could say that with a, with a, with a clear conscience. He exhorted the Colossians, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. So again and again and again, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, calls our attention to these very issues. John, 
You remember uh, John's epistle to his beloved congregation. Chapter 2, 1 John, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Hmm. We seem to love the world and everything in the world, don't we? It's hard not to. We're so bombarded with it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love God and love mammon too. You can't love God and love money too. You've got to love God. That's our challenge. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father but from the world. Again, addressing this whole issue of covetousness. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. After it's all said and done, what's going what's to remain? What's going to remain? The man who does the will of God. All the stuff that we strive for, all the stuff that we worry about, all the stuff that we buy increasing amounts of insurance to cover <laughs> is going to ultimately burn, isn't it? We spend ever-increasing amounts of money to protect and to, to put alarm systems and it, 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 and on and on and on. It's all going to burn. It's, it's got our focus. We're, we, we crave and hunger and desire the things of this world. You see, none of us are immune. It just, it just sucks us in. We're not even aware of it. I don't say this to, 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 for us to throw our hands up and feel hopeless about it, but just to make us aware again and again and again and again so that we can indeed not only acknowledge that, but also begin to repent of it. When you assess the spiritual significance of the sin of covetousness, in other words, when you, you really begin to think about it, as the Apostle Paul did, you inevitably are forced to take a very, very deep, deep look into the interior of your heart and your soul. People are always asking me and saying, you know, as you, the longer you're a Christian, does, does it get easier? Well, in some sense it does. In some sense you, you develop patterns and habits and, and ways of living which, which make your life work and function more effectively. But in another way, it, your, your heart is broken more. Because as the longer you're a Christian, if you're serious in your faith, and as you're seeking to mature, you're forced now, because largely you're able to, to throw off most all of the big things, the big sins, the external stuff that would trip you up when you were young. But now, now you look into your heart. And now you see the depth and the extent of pride. <laughs> You go, ooh, I'm not prideful. Mm. Beware if someone says, I'm not prideful, or beware if someone says, aren't I humble? <laughs> but not only that, you, you, you're forced to look into your heart. And this is, this is why it's so important to practice the spiritual discipline of silence, of quiet. Just get quiet with God. And say, God, Search my heart and show me any hurtful way in me. And then God begins to reveal and show things to you that you just do not want to see. You go, yuck, yuck. And you see your, you see your evil, you see your covetousness. You see the things that you long for that uh, maybe you're so busy that you don't really focus on them all the time. So you begin to look into your heart and your mind because that's where the real battle is, isn't it? The battle's not so much out here. The battle's in here. And the longer you're a Christian and the longer you pursue your walk, the struggle, the deeper internal struggle becomes more prominent. Scripture calls us to do all we can to root out this deadly desire, these influences. It's almost as if they're, they're sparks, they're there's sparks of fire. And you know how when sparks of fire uh, fall on the carpet, what do we do? You have to look at these, at these thoughts, these desires, and, and you, you stamp them out. You, you leave them no room. No room. Stamp out the very first thought or urge to covet or to lust. Because if you don't, then what, uh, what God says in Genesis 
Chapter 6, verse 5 becomes characteristic of all of us. It says, every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. That's where we get to. That was the point at which God says, I'm sorry I made man. Son of a, certainly none, uh, hardly any of us are all the way there, but the, the point is, if we don't stamp these things out now, when temptation knocks at that door, when your heart and your, and your appetites are, are tentilated and you want, oh, no, you've got to be brutal with yourself. These inclinations are to be steadfastly watched for, hated, resisted. They are to be stamped out like sparks of a dangerous fire for as soon as they begin to stir within us and we allow them, uh, they will pollute and destroy our souls. I just want to look with you at some of the common ways in which we covet. These are common to all of us. First one is possessions. So you have to understand what it is that needs uprooting. <laughs> Possessions. We've all heard the cliche, uh, money or things cannot make you happy. Isn't that true? Many people, including many Christians, actually believe otherwise in their heart of hearts. I know money can't really make me happy. I'd like to try, though. Elvis Presley. Elvis had three jets. He had two Cadillacs, a Rolls Royce, a Lincoln Continental, two station wagons, a Jeep, a custom touring bus, and three motorcycles, and this was a generation ago. His favorite car was his 1960 Cadillac limousine. The top was covered with pearl white Naga hide. The body was sprayed with 40 coats of a specially prepared paint that included crushed diamonds. Nearly all the metal trim was plated in 18 karat gold. He had two gold telephones in the car. He had a gold vanity case, a gold electric razor, gold hair clippers, a gold-plated TV, a gold-plated record player. He basically had it all. He had all the money. He had all the stuff. He had all the fame. Everything you and I, humanly speaking, would say, go, man, if I could just have been Elvis Presley. He had it all. But he died a lonely and unhappy man. Tragic. When Diet Coke, I don't know if you know this, Diet Coke first came out, it was only available in the U.S., not available worldwide. A woman by the name of Christina Onassis, the heiress to the whole Onassis Greek shipping empire. Some of you know who I'm talking about. She would monthly dispatch a jet to the U.S. at the cost of $30,000 to pick up cases of the real thing. (laughs) Friends of hers who were too busy to spend all their time with her were paid $20,000 to $30,000 a month to be her pals. And yet Christina Onassis died an unfulfilled and profoundly unhappy woman. We all know why the lives of these super-rich celebrities ended so miserably. They were empty inside. They had no hope. They put their trust and their money and their talent and their resources and the things. But all that stuff ultimately fails. Money can't buy happiness. Material things can't, they they can only meet a small need. And it's only Jesus in a life who changes that life, who fills that life, can sate that insatiable heart. Clichés aside, we somehow believe that if we had lots of money, we would be the exception. I'd be different. I had a good friend years ago, I haven't seen him in a number of years, but I had a good friend who was uh, fond of uh, 
playing the horses. And he was committed to developing a system that would be fail-proof so he could go to the track and he would have laid down the bets. And, and he was always working, always working, always working. Developing. This is before computers. And he was developing a system. And he would tell me continually, he says, Zach, I'm telling you, when I hit it, when this system, when it's going to work, I'm going to give to that. I'm going to buy you a new church. I'd say, Ed, I love you. I said, but if you ain't giving now, you're never going to give then. And I said, you're, you're chasing a dream. There is no system. I said, you need to start honoring God now. You need to start honoring God. You need to get your life right with God now. He never developed the system. Tragically. Paul says, First Timothy chapter 6, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money is the root. Money is not the problem. Money is, is neutral. It's amoral. It's, that's not the issue. It's the love of money. It's when a person gets consumed by it, and, and that which it can buy, oh, 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 the whole shift of their life is different now. Ecclesiastes 5.10 puts it this way, whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. He says this too is meaningless. Howard Hughes was asked, how much more money do you need? And his response typically was, that much more. He was never satisfied. And you know Howard Hughes' end. It was obscure, tragic. No one really knows what's happened to him. You see, there's no problem with what the Bible says. The problem is with us. We just need to believe the Bible. But a lot of times we, we say, oh, okay, okay, I, I know what it says, but that would never happen to me. Just, just If I could just win the lottery. Anybody, I'm just going to ask for sure, anybody ever fantasize about winning the lottery? <laughs> I do. I won't buy a ticket. I will not spend a dollar on a ticket. That is absolutely obscene to me. I'll take that dollar and send it to John Schober. But the thought sometimes, I, I, I think, oh, I could use $78 million. What I do is $78 million. It's obscene what I do, and so God has seen fit that I should not win the lottery. <laughs> You see how easily we're drawn off that? How easily we're seduced? And we look at our situation, we say, well, well I guess, you know, the Tevia in, in, the, in the field of earth would have hurt some great eternal plan, oh God, if I were a wealthy man. No, the problem's with us. We need to believe the Bible. We need to believe the Bible. We need to take these words and say, Lord, okay, I am not going to seek to be rich. Because if I seek to be rich, there's a difference between God making you rich and you seeking it. You can seek to do a good job. You can seek to be a, a faithful worker, employer, a business person, entrepreneur, all that stuff. But if you seek to be rich, you're setting yourself up for a huge failure. So we can covet after possession. We can covet after people. It happens all the time, doesn't it? People coveting after other people, men and women, forbids it. One poignant account of this, uh, which really, really spoke to me years ago, I read, I read a biography. Uh, an older Christian leader was recounting uh, one particular episode, a self-pitying complaint of another Christian leader whose career had soured late in life and his complaint was this. He said, if only God had given him Ruth Graham for a wife instead of the one he had, then he would have been successful. <laughs> Think of the inevitable imagined adultery that went on in his mind. Perhaps even including the death wish towards her husband or maybe his own spouse. If we were to use that man's own logic, 
Did he ever think of what Ruth Graham might not have become if she had been tethered to his sorry soul? She's always about us, you know. I'm be, I, why don't you, I, I should have that. I'd be so much better if I had that person, that thing, that much. And coveting, coveting people can also be, include coveting of families. Oh, if I were just born into that family, if I had those people as my parents, I would be so much better and better than their kids, certainly. Boy, I can see how their kids are lousy, but I would be a better child if I had those people as my parents. We can covet after position or status. Not only possessions, not only people, but position or status. Jesus saw this firsthand among the scribes and the Pharisees who loved the places of prominence in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. Listen to what he says. He's telling his own disciples, he's warning them. He says, everything the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law do, is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels of their prayer shawls long. In other words, they want to be seen to be holy men. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them Rebbe. Sadly, Jesus saw it only too closely in his own disciples. That's why he warns them. You recall when James and John had come to Jesus and asked to be seated at the right and left and so forth, and there was a great argument ensued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And the other disciples, upon hearing about James and John's request, uh, uh, they were not happy themselves. You know, everyone's striving for position. Everyone's saying, it's a one-upsmanship deal. And Jesus tells them, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must be what? Servant of all. You've got to take the lowest place if you're going to be the greatest in the kingdom. That's what Jesus did, didn't he? He humbled himself to the point of, of servitude. He humbled himself to the point of death, death and death on a cross. See, we believe the Bible. This is the way. The Bible gives us the way to life and fulfillment. While we may very often read it and say, oh yeah, I believe that, but we do just the opposite. We are so prone to covet another person's position, another person's place, another person's status. We covet their accomplishments. Some fall to coveting just another person's either educational or professional accomplishments. That PhD should have been yours. Your friend writes a book and it becomes the book that you would have written because you would have done it better. I had a fellow come tell me last night very, that very same thing. He got a, a book of his friend from the East Coast wrote, sent him a copy. He's reading this review. He says, ha! I could have written a better book. And then he heard me preach. He went, oh, right to the heart. <laughs> Laid him out cold, he said. And this attitude of coveting another person's accomplishments can often be accompanied by a quote-unquote people are getting ahead of me attitude. We're jealous that they get ahead of us. While you're at your desk working hard, people are at the gym working out. They're getting ahead of you. When a friend gets a promotion, he's getting ahead of you. When you're sitting in church listening to a sermon, your unchurched golfing partner is getting ahead of you. <laughs> I couldn't resist that one. We covered another person's spirituality. This is a particular insidious form of coveting. The Apostle Paul understood this. He was the object of such coveting when he was in prison. And his disciples came to him, and it's recorded in the first chapter of uh, Philippians, that there were others engaged in competition for his spot. And his disciples came and complained. They're, they're, they're preaching uh, Jesus for selfish motives. Paul says, don't worry about it. Doesn't matter why they're preaching, just as long as Jesus is preached. God's big enough to take care of his own name and his own reputation. He'll use all things. He's big enough. 
Don't worry about it. John the Baptist's own disciples, they went to John to to warn John of Jesus' rising popularity. (laughs) They too were insecure that way. And they said, everyone is going to him. It's okay, John said. It's okay. It's the way it's supposed to be. Everybody's to go to him. It's not about us. So you see, coveting, coveting has many flashpoints. Possessions, people, position, accomplishments, even spirituality. But it reaches, I think, its absolute lowest in the damning sins of envy and jealousy. By, one, by which one actually feels wounded by the prosperity and by the success of another. Oh, it hurts so much to see them successful. There's a word for this. It's called resentment. That's why the Bible says that no bitter root, no bitterness take hold and rise up in your life. Resentment. Oh, this will destroy more people. Resentment really is a word that describes a longing to do harm to the one envied. But since that's unacceptable, doing harm, the attitude will often manifest itself in one saying things that detract from the other's worth or maybe also in rejoicing at the other's misfortune. Just looking for a chance for that person to fall so that you can rejoice in it. That they get hurt. You resent them so much. Resentment festers. It festers with a desire to do harm. It whispers continually this thought. Listen, pay attention. I can forgive everything, but not what you are. That you are what you are. That I am not what you are. Indeed, that I am not you. This I cannot forgive. You see, that's the essence of resentment right there. I resent you. I resent that I'm not you. I resent that you are what you are. I can't get past this. I can't forgive this. You see, the fact is we're all covetous. We're all covetous. And this is precisely what the Tenth Commandment did to Paul. It pointed out to him, even Paul, his own covetousness, He himself was a lawbreaker. In Romans chapter 7, listen to what he says, verses 7 through 9. He's giving a defense for the law and for the reason for the law against the legals of his day and those who were attacking him in his ministry. He was preaching the grace of God. And so he was saying that the law served a purpose that they were unaware of. He says, it it, it served a purpose that I I realize uh, that I am a sinner. He says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not know what it was to covet. He picks out the Tenth Commandment as his example. I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Or more literally, it's dormant. It's just under the surface. And when the law comes to bear, when you stare intently into the perfect, pure law of God, it stirs up sin. None of us can justify ourselves. And he says, verse 9, Once I was alive apart from the law, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. In other words, prior to the Tenth Commandment and prior to his his understanding and, and looking intently into the Tenth Commandment, he thought he was doing really well. I'm looking pretty good. Look at me. And then the commandment came. When he seriously considered that 10th commandment, he was now spiritually illuminated. Paul saw that his entire interior life was filled with coveting. And when he tried to abstain from coveting, he says all he could do is covet all the more. The law had killed him. The law had condemned him. He knew what he was. He felt the sentence of death. Beloved, that's the point. That's where we got to get to. That point of ultimate, absolute despair and death. The law has condemned me. I have no hope. I can't justify myself. I can't say, look at me, I'm doing pretty good. No, 
like Paul, you've got to be devastated by the law. Because it's that very thing in that despair that gloriously opened him up to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God that comes by faith in Jesus. And that grace is the ultimate, the only remedy for covetous heart. The grace of God. You cannot find a solution any place else except at the grace of God. You come to Christ. You recognize you're a sinner. You recognize you're hopeless. You can't fake it anymore. You can't make excuses anymore. You can't hide anymore. You say, God, I am a wretched sinner in my heart. Save me. You come to Him trusting and depending upon His saving grace. And once you embrace that grace, now now you must walk in grace. Now the question is, how does one walk in grace? I get this question all the time. How, how, do, you, how do you walk in grace? I've got the solution for you right here. Ready? How many want to know how to walk in grace? And you'll see, it's not, nothing, it's not anything new. It's something you've heard again and again and again. But I'm just going to kind of put it in the format for you. First of all, first, first dynamic to, to walking grace is loving. Is that new? Yeah. Loving. First John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. God's love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given to us, John, Romans 5.5. 5. God pours His love into our hearts. It, we need His love to love Him back. That's the truth. You cannot muster up, most of us muster up a sentimentality. We say, oh, I love you, God. I love you, Jesus. Oh, I love you, Jesus. That's not love, it's sentiment. It's a romantic idea. Loving God really is evidenced by what? Obedience. You don't have to say, I love you. You just obey. But you can't do it without His power, His strength, His spirit, His grace in your life. You see, the way to love others is to intensely love God first. But it's got to be by His love that He gives you. It's all Him. It's all Him. It's, not, it's nothing I can do on my own. This is the miracle of being a believer. You love God intensely, you do it truly, you will love your neighbor as yourself, and as you love your neighbor as yourself, you will thus be liberated from sinful coveting of your neighbor. Does that make sense? Here's a second dynamic, seeking. Seeking. Matthew 6.33, Jesus will provide everything necessary, he says, for a rich, full life to those who seek his kingdom, his reign in their life. Just seek him. You see, if we are kingdom seekers, and as such, we have everything we will ever need, then we have no need to covet anything. If you're tempted to covet, seek his kingdom, seek his righteousness. Feeding is the third one. Jesus, again, in John chapter 6, verse 35, told his disciples, he says, I am the bread of life. Mm. He who comes to me will never grow hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Oh my, does that sound like satiation? Does that sound like being filled? How do you feed on Jesus? How do you get full of Jesus? Yeah, it's right here. It's right here. He's called the living word. We have the word, the God, word of God right here. Feed on it, meditate on it, memorize it. Paul writes in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. And so as we read, oh, oh, this is the truth. Okay, we renew the way we think. And as our thinking is renewed, our lives are changed. Proverbs says very simply, as a man thinks, so is he. Contenting. Contenting. We must make sure that we are actively contenting our souls with Christ and with whatever he chooses to provide at any given moment. Does that mean I shouldn't be ambitious to, to, to grow and, and, to, and to move on? No, no. But if you find yourself coveting, 
then you've just stepped over the line. God has meant us to grow. He, he wants us to progress. He wants us to achieve greater and greater things as he leads us to do those things. But the, the, the situation is that must grow out of a contentment. Jesus, you're all I need, and, and you provided with me this moment all I need. I'm, I'm content. Content people do not covet. He said in John 4:14, 4, uh, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You want life, life to the full? Be content with Jesus and what he chooses to provide at any given moment. So you quell the anxiousness. You quell, you say, no, I'm not going to be anxious. God knows. Tomorrow's a new day. He's going to open the door. If he wants me, he's going to move. He's going to arrange situations. He's been faithful to me all my life, hasn't he? Those like Paul who have learned Jesus' way, they testify thusly, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. They further assure us, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches. And finally, they state categorically, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And the last is coveting. Coveting. You say, coveting? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Walking in grace involves coveting? Yes, yes. There is a proper coveting. Coveting, proper coveting is the answer to sinful coveting. Two ways. First, there is a proper coveting for self. Paul urges, desire eagerly the greater gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We must covet not for others' gifts, but to grow in the gifts that God has given us, and then to long for even greater gifts. Jesus puts it very simply in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 6, he says, we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. There should be, in a sense, a holy dissatisfaction with the state of your spiritual life. Lord, I, I hunger for greater righteousness. I hunger to know you more. As, as Paul will say in Philippians, to know him more. To know him more. Second, we must covet the best for others. Covet the best for others through our prayers. We ought to prayerfully covet the best for others' blessings in regard to possessions and people and position and accomplishments and spirituality. Pray for the prosperity of our brothers and sisters. Pray that their marriages will be blessed. Pray that their position and influence would increase. Pray that they will accomplish great things. Pray that they will grow in grace. You see, that's a kind of noble coveting, honorable coveting, that if embraced will free you from all sinful covetousness. You shall not covet. Look into your heart. If you're afraid to do it, just get quiet before God and say, God, show me. Show me if there be any hurtful way in me. Search my heart. I want to be right with you, O Lord. Put me on the path of grace And help me, Lord, to embrace these disciplines of grace that I may not covet. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. We love you today. And Lord, your grace is so marvelous and so sufficient. Help us to rest in that grace. Help us to trust in that grace in what you're doing in our lives. Lord, we're not just religious people. We're not just going through the motions, jumping through holy hoops. But God, we're trusting you, waiting upon you learning to obey you, learning what it means to love you and to seek after you. Lord, learning what it means to feed on you, learning what it means, Lord, to covet those right and good things. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for your spirit who lives in us. Thank you for this great salvation that you have granted us. Strengthen us, O God. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I just one last word. If, you, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, God has you here for a reason. 
You've not walked through these doors because maybe, well, you know, you were just some coincidental reason. God has brought you here. Trust me on that one. He's He's brought you here because he wants you to know Jesus Christ. And if you don't do so today before you leave, then sometime this week, you talk to somebody who you know is a Christian and say, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to settle this issue once and for all in my life. Seek him out. Seek him out. It'll be the biggest change, the biggest blessing in your entire life. Let's stand and let's praise our God one more time before we dismiss.